Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This show is an encore presentation of the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. Hope you enjoy this second helping. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. We are in a very special situation here at Gateway Community College with the many kitchens in their culinary program that we have use of, the students we meet. But today is a special day. Our guest is Lydia Bastianich, who has written a memoir called My American Dream. Welcome to the Food Schmooze Party. Thanks. Beautiful to be here again and schmooze with you. I know, exactly. (laughs) And Chris Prosperi, senior contributor on the show, my buddy, senior producer Robin Doyen Aiken is here. Lydia knows so much about Italian cooking, how to teach the rest of us that it's hard to describe this PBS television chef, restaurateur, cookbook author. But after a very long time of following her and learning from her, as many people have, I can define Lydia in two words. I was thinking about this very carefully, and that would be um, living treasure. Oh, uh, God. Her, her life story, as she reveals it in this newly published memoir, My American Dream, and it's that title for a reason. It's a fascinating read. I showed it to Lydia just a few minutes ago. This copy of my book is underlined on almost every page. I sinfully folded down the corners of the page. I kept turning those pages in a kind of wonder and amazement. In this story, she and her brother and her parents are put in a former Nazi concentration camp refugee center in Italy. The family had lost everything where they were living, which was a considerable amount, and finally they were admitted to America as refugees, not understanding a word of English. Their friends and neighbors were disappeared during the reign of Tito in the region of Italy that became Yugoslavia, and they were endangered to this family. So this woman is our Lydia, the force behind one of the great Italian cooking empires in America, and you're about to hear how all this happened from the woman known and loved by one name. But is Lydia her name? Okay. Mystery. Lydia, I'm going to get to the answer to that question in just a minute because we need to do something first. I know that you had grown up in what we knew as the Trieste region of Italy. And what I didn't realize is that after the war and the Paris Treaty of 1947, Your area was given to communist Yugoslavia. Now, Tito is in charge. What did that mean for your family and you? It meant a complete turnaround in a sense of complete censorship of human liberties. I remember, I remember in the family, because as a family, you know, we were Italian, so we couldn't speak Italian. 
we had to speak Yugoslavia, which is similar to Croatia now. We couldn't go to church. My father had his little business, two trucks. He was deemed a capitalist. The trucks were taken. He was put in jail. And all of these things, you know, as a young child and growing up, you sense this kind of censorship and blocking. Because when we were in the house, we would kind of huddle in our culture. And then outside, we had to be somebody else. So you have always felt like at least two people, I think. Exactly. I had to be one part of the day, and the other one was the reality at home. So we get to this part about the name. This Now we're getting to why we had to go there first. Your name really wasn't Lydia. <laughs> my name is Juliana. My mother, my brother, my cousins till this day call me Juliana, and I respond to it. And, and that came about because of the censorship of religion. My mother had her sister, whose name was Lydia, kind of sneak me out of the hospital and take me and baptize me and bring me right back to the hospital. And they brought you in a, a sack, right, yeah, hoping she, you wouldn't cry? Yes, yes. I, oh, you know, they, they Certainly, I'm sure the hospitals weren't as controlled as now, and people knew each other. But yeah. nonetheless, uh, she took me to the church, I guess, and baptized me. But she chose to put her name first and the given name by my mother second. Oh. So I was Lydia Juliana. And it only, she never told anybody, it only came afloat, if you will, uh, when uh, my mother brought me to register for, for school. And that's when they realized that, well, she's not Juliana, she's Lydia. <laughs> and, uh, and then my life as Lydia began, in oh. a sense. You see, Chris, how this reinforces yeah. this idea of having to be. I mean, uh, maybe in life, in many situations, we all have to do this. We have to be many people. Yeah. But this gets me to identify with lots of immigrants who are running from something. Yes. Yeah. I, and, you know, when I think about it and, and I see today's situation, I can really empathize, empathize with these the youngsters especially mm -hmm. because I remember mm -hmm. as a child – you, you are frightened. You are lost. You're looking for an anchor. You're clinging to your parents because that's your unity. That's your strength. So I can really understand the sentiments that are going on, and I really feel. Your family decides to leave because it's getting more and more dangerous. And so you finally make it to Italy. Well, you and your brother and your mother do. Your father stays behind, and he whispers something in your mother's ear, and you remember what that was. Well, the idea was that since the borders went down and some of the family was left in Italy and we were caught in Yugoslavia, that we would go and visit supposedly our sick aunt in Trieste. But they wouldn't give the visa to the whole family because they knew that the family wouldn't return. So my mother, my brother, and I got the visa, and we went to Trieste. My father had to remain as a hostage. But about two weeks after, since that whisper my mother and my father had a pact, he decided that he would try to escape, and he did. He made it. He escaped through the borders. I had the barbed wires, the dogs, the shooting, he and he walked. made it. He walked, he walked. by foot. Yes. Wow. And there's a scene where he shows up on the door where you, your mother and you and your brother are in an apartment of a relative, and he shows up on the door and collapses. 
I remember because, you know, I heard all this commotion. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. I was frightened as a child. You you know, you just... And so I, I jumped up and I saw, and he was on the floor. But he was also all muddy. He told this story later that he had dogs, scent dogs following him, and there was a puddle of mud, and he rolled into the puddle of mud oh so that he would cover the scent so that the dogs would lose him. At the end, he was all wet and muddy when he collapsed at the door. Before you left for Italy, and you think, as I'm reading your your memoir, and just astonished, as I said, with every page turn, I think, oh, finally, they're going to head to the ideal place. Because your childhood, before Tito came into power and this whole totalitarian regime... Your life was really idyllic. It was. And it was also, it extended into part of that communist kind of situation because, you know, my mother was an elementary school teacher. But she put my brother and myself in grandma's hands. She took us away from the city and the watchful eye of the secret police. And that, for me, was, I think, where my feeling, my essence for food and love for food was born. Grandma, she grew, raised the food for the whole family because food was scarce. And there we had chickens, we had ducks, we had goats. I remember milking the goats with Grandma. We had pigs every November, the slaughter, the prosciutto, the sausages. The cherries. The cherries, springtime, absolutely. The apricots, the rafter, the figs in the summertime. Grandpa made wine and olive oil, just enough for us. So in that kind of formative stage of my life, I was very much about food. I was like a little runner for Grandma. We would go and harvest the the peas, the favas, the potatoes. I mean, I would help Grandma actually pull the potatoes out of the ground. She would hoe it, and then we would collect it. And I remember the potatoes in my hands being nice and warm. And then I was a helper in the kitchen, making the pasta, kneading. She would put a little step stool for me, and I would kind of knead with her. When we escaped to Italy... I was not fully aware that we were not going to go back. Once I saw my father and I said, oh, this is a reality. But I hadn't said goodbye to my grandmother, to my friends. And so something unfinished was with me. And food was that connect. Wow. So I know your grandmother was like a mother to you. Oh, absolutely. I I could feel that. This is Lydia Bastianich, and her memoir is just out, and it is amazing as a read, My American Dream. And it takes you through the beginning all the way up to what I call the empire, (laughs) the the Bastianich (laughs) empire now in the food world. But it's just astounding that this lovely, incredibly talented person we see on TV has this history. It's just amazing. So I think, oh, at last they have made it to Italy. (laughs) Now, here we go. And what happens, this is where you'll see all the underlinings in the book and stars and exclamation points. You were put into a place that was a Nazi concentration camp in Italy, and that you could still see the lines of the crematorium. This is where they put you as a refugee. Yes, San Saba. San Saba is a camp outside of Trieste. Now it is a museum. Coming to Trieste, we were given a visa. Visa has an expiration date, and my father had no papers. So we came back into Italy, and being afraid that we are going to be repatriated because if you were caught, we would go back. So my 
parents were quite afraid. And, and, and they they would have been either killed or yes, horrible labor in prison. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so they decided that after my father got a bit better, that they would go to the police station and say there were there were quite a few immigrants in Trieste. Trieste was a a city of a lot of transfers. And the police said. You need to go into a camp. You need to register. You have no papers, wow. even though you are Italians, because we didn't have any Italian papers at the time. And uh, we went first in a quarantine and then all the interrogations and and health and the lousing and all kinds. You know, as a young child, that really affected me because even we were divided as a family. My father, my the boys, the men, mm. my father, and my brother were separated from me. I thought I would never see them and I was devastated. For, for two days, I would look out of this kind of barred window hoping to see them. And so it was a, a dark period initially. And then soft, softly, it kind of, they gave us this space. They had a whole floor where families were. There was a floor for single women and there was a floor for single men. And uh, the whole area was divided into little, little cubicles, if you will, uh, of family dwellings. With, we, with blankets? Divided by blankets? Blankets or cardboards or, you know, and you had this kind of, squeaky opening door, but you heard everything because it wasn't, you know, it's like like a bathroom stall. It was kind of a bigger, and uh, when is this? This like is the time This period. is in 1956. So the war's over, and it's still... It's still, because war and communism really yeah. permeated Eastern Europe, sure. and that power was... And people were escaping. There was a big exodus. The refugees after World War II was tremendous. They're comparing it with the refugees now. And there was so, – so the countries came together and had to make provisions on how to handle, not unlike what they did today. I am so grateful that you've told this story at this time because I'm watching television. I'm reading everything, and I'm, I think that I can identify with these people who are fleeing something, trying to make a better life because I can hear you. I know you, and I can hear your words, and it is so affecting me and enabling me to understand what so many people right now must be going through, just as you did. Well, Faith, that was actually, you know, when I finally decided, because I wasn't going to write this yet. You know, I'm into cookbooks, and that's what I people know me for. But I was encouraged. I was encouraged by the, the editors and the publisher that my story can maybe go parallel with what's happening today. And people know me, and it's a story that I lived and ultimately survived and ultimately really made a great ending to it. So there's hope. Yes, there's such intimacy about this story. I think that's what I was trying to get to, and so I really am taking in the details. And we should never forget. We were there once how many years ago, and here we are again. Yes. We should have our arms open. Yes. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a break because you can't believe where this story goes, (laughs) the story of um, Lydia Bastianich, who's written a memoir, finally uh, the story of her life. Who would know that this person standing there on all these PBS television shows, giving us all these cookbooks, teaching us all these years, that this is what happened in her life. All the more astounding. More conversation ahead here on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze with Lydia Bastianich. Don't go away.
I'm Faith Middleton. I'm with my treasured food buddy, Chris Presbury, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut. And I would say now, a lot of people must feel this if they've read this book, with my treasured friend, Lydia Bastianich. It's the most amazing, most beautiful, affecting memoir. Thank you so much for writing it. And here we have your son's wine, Bastianich, and your vineyard in Italy. Cheers to you. Cheers to you, Chris. So so here we've left off in this story. If you're just joining us, Lydia is telling in her book this amazing story about Tito coming to power in the 1940s in Italy, the part of Italy that she and her family lived in, this idyllic life. It's just given in the Paris Treaty to Yugoslavia, communist, and they decide that anyone who isn't communist is bad and people are being disappeared and murdered and it's just an, an astonishing story so they escape when they get to Italy the family they they're put into a concentration camp in Italy San Saba uh, which was a former Nazi concentration camp and crematorium to my amazement you were there for 2 years yes oh my god because where are we going to go we could have reclaimed our Italian citizenship. Mm. But we still would have had to stay in the camp until they cleared all the papers and get us out. My parents decided, no, Italy in the aftermath was destroyed, no jobs. Italians were fleeing and immigrating. And so my parents said, let's stay here. Let's stay in the camp. Let's await. Hopefully soon we will get a chance to go to a free country. And the countries that were accepting at that time were Canada, Australia, America, Belgium, uh, Belgium, and also South America. I guess wherever they needed workers. You uh, could have so, had a show, Mi Amiga. <laughs> so, so you had no idea, or your family had no, no idea. No, no, no. You asked for an application, and the first choice for, for my parents, for us, was America, of course. Uh, and you wait. You wait for the response of who will accept you. Belgium, I think, responded first. But my mother didn't want to go to Belgium because they were taking immigrants there because they had the mines. And there was a big accident. A lot of people died in the mine in those times. And so my mother said, no, no, we waited this long. Let's wait a little longer. And then ultimately, Dwight Eisenhower was the president. That was 1958. And he opened immigration for communist fleeing refugees, of which we were. We hear that refugees today get interviewed and have to go through quite a lengthy process, but that doesn't really mean anything to me. When I read how they interrogated you, the Americans interrogated you to find out if they thought that everything was right with you physically, that you would fit into society, that you had a good chance of making it. And also politically, that I guess my parents didn't have an underlying communist oh. uh, spies. spies or something. So the, we were vetted thoroughly, health-wise also. And when we were deemed clean politically and uh, physically and whatever, we finally were allowed to come in. So imagine wow. this family on a plane flying to America and the wondrousness of that, for, especially for you and your brother, but not to mention your parents. But then there's a scene in your book, it's called My American Dream, where they set you up on that very first day. Now they come to New York City. Can you imagine that? A look from this little place coming into New York City and thinking, what in the world? And they put you in midtown Manhattan in a hotel called the Walcott? Yes. 
<laughs> it it was amazing. So we had nobody in America. It's not that we had family waiting. So the Catholic Relief Services and the Catholic Charities and the Red Cross were responsible for bringing us here, paying our trip. But there was about 50 family. I remember they came with a yellow bus. At that time, they didn't realize, but it was a school bus. They drove us into Manhattan. So from JFK, as you go towards Manhattan, I still see the side, this profile of Manhattan, sure. all of these big buildings like needles. It was like the postcards that we used to look. And my brother and I just couldn't detach ourselves from the window. And ultimately, we come in the middle of it. It was just extraordinary, the energy, the the happiness. But you don't speak a word of English. No. <laughs> Not one no. of you None in of your us. entire family. Yes. When you finally leave that hotel... I'm reading where you kept trying to give the money back to the Catholic <laughs> charities, where they would loan them some money every time. You thought yeah. it was a loan. But yes. It was to help you get settled. Yes. The next day, right away, we went to visit the social worker. They told us it was right around the corner. She spoke Italian and explained to my mother and my father what the procedure would be. Us kids were always in tow, so we were kind of half listening to what they say, half looking all around what's happening. And uh, at the end of the conversation, I think she gave my mother 16 or $18 for the week. And she says, eat your food, feed the children. And so she pointed out some things where we could eat. But my mother, for the whole first week, you know, she saw this money and she says, oh, my God, I'm not working. When am I going to return it? Not so, to mention how much is it. She has no way of knowing how much money that is in her hand. No, no. But we had milk, Wonder Bread, and bananas. That was our menu for the whole week. That's what she bought. Yeah. Aww. We loved it. The bananas were something new to us and, of course, milk. But she felt we had the basis, nutritional necessities, and she yeah. didn't spend much. So the next week when we came to the social worker, and my mother pulled out the money that was left over. Oh, I have plenty of money. I don't need any for next week. And she says, my God, did you feed these children? And she says, well, I don't have a job. How am I going to return this? You know, I, we ate. We. She says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. We want to feed you. You will have an opportunity to find work, and to be good Americans and to appreciate all of this. Then about four years after that, we went to visit. You know, you would go once a year. And my mother took with her her little bank book. She was ready to pay back everything, the accumulation. I don't know, it was three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000. She was ready to pay back what they gave us. And they never took it back. I, I can't explain... How does one, unless you experience it, really understand the, the goodness of people? We are a product of people that care, that took care of us, that wanted us, that wanted us to come. They had a vision for us. They knew that we would become good Americans, that America needs these enthusiastic people that mm -hmm. want a free place to live, mm -hmm. that want to feed their family. And when they finally found us a little apartment in New Jersey, people came from the Italian community, from the, from the Catholic community. They brought in chairs. They brought in beds. They brought in towels. They filled our cupboards with food. In my, my heart still, the gratitude that how people really cared. My response uh, to that uh, was, this is my country. I want to be here. I want to become American as soon as possible. And when I was 18, because that's when you were allowed at 18, I applied for citizenship, and I became a citizen at 18. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that I'm not leaving here, that finally I mm -hmm. have a country. Mm -hmm. 
It still happens, though. I'm listening to your story, and we have a family from Yemen working for us now, and they came here with nothing, with no friends, no family, and the mosque did exactly what brings them food every week and gets them acclimated and helps getting their kids in school. And We need to help each other. Yeah. You know, we need to help each other until we're on our feet yeah. and move on, and then in turn... We help others as we go on, and I think you know, that's story. one of my greatest pleasures now. Yeah. Your, your father, before we get to you getting one of your first jobs at the bakery across the street, because it's a really interesting <laughs> story, but your father, he never quite adjusted to life here. He missed. He, he didn't. My father, I guess, was at, at an age, he was 10 years older than my mother, and uh, he was in his late 40s, early 50s, and I guess he felt... They took everything away from him. He was depressed. He was very nostalgic. Uh, he didn't learn the language as quickly. He never really learned it uh, well. He kind of dealt very hard with being yeah. away. It's interesting because your mother could still do so many of the things that she did in Italy slash Yugoslavia. Your father, there really he couldn't assume what he had there. That whole process took the essence of really being strong and wanting. He was somewhat empty at times, yeah, absolutely. She, being a mother, mm -hmm. uh, seeing us to school, working, somehow she got acclimated much faster. He, mm. It took him a long time, and I don't think he ever really did. Mm. My American Dream is the name of Lydia Bastianich's memoir. It's just come out, and it's really extraordinary. We're at Gateway Community College in our studios here, it's a great place to be interviewing you because I know you believe in community colleges and in universities. You've seen there's a big culinary program here, and that's what we love so much, to see uh, yeah. these kids trying. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that education and given a chance, these kids are going to make their life, and they're going to be all that much better for all of America. Yeah. So you get this job in your teens this over at the bakery across the street, this Mr. Walken owns it. You know, he doesn't really ask you too many questions about your age, you mm -hmm. say. And you weren't really quite old enough to be working. But he gives you a job, and you get to know his son who's on your shift, and on and on it goes. And then as the story goes on, what do we find out? Well, I was 14, and but I was a big girl, 16. I lied, and they took me on. He was a German immigrant, but settled. He had all three boys working there. There was three brothers, and of course, Christopher. We're still Christopher Walken. We're still friends. We he comes over the house, um, and uh, you know, we he loves to cook. By the way, he's a I good cook. He he's does. a good cook. You know, I'm kind of I'm mad about him. Uh, I think he's just the most extraordinary actor, and I just like him. I remember hearing somewhere that he loves to cook. He does. And so I became really, really interested. I loved it that he was in your in your life. He lives in Connecticut. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I yeah. hear. Um, well, maybe there's a property next door. You know, <laughs> Going need, in for I dinner? Need, I need a really good cook next door. <laughs> okay, so how does it happen? You marry a man. You have children. You are at Hunter College. And you get it into your heads. You're just now making it. And you say... We need to open a restaurant. And, well, I, you know, I had my head in my hands thinking, well, I know how this story ends. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, but, What's the real beginning? Well, it wasn't, you know, as much as I loved food, that's not 
what my focus of the future was. I met my husband, Felice, who was also an immigrant from Istria, and he was he came here single. He made waves in the restaurant business. He worked worked his way up as a, a, a waiter and then a maitre d', and he ultimately wanted to open his own restaurant. I think that's part of what brought us together also was the food. He was looking for partners. I said, you know what? I will help you. And so in 1971, he comes up with this little restaurant in Forest Hills, Queens, and it had uh, nine tables. It was a French restaurant, and we just took it over. And I certainly wasn't a chef. I loved cooking. I knew my Italian things. He was expert with the dining room. We hired a chef, an Italian-American chef, and, you know, I realized, well, I better get some training. I went in the kitchen and became the sous chef. Wow. And for 10 years, which we had the restaurant, I worked alongside this Italian-American chef. And that's where I learned all the Italian-American food and hence, you know, the books. What did you think at that time? Because this wasn't, you know, if you go to Italy, this isn't the real. This was what Italian-American food came to be as all kinds of you know, Chinese-American, and, and, you know, it, because these are the ingredients you could get. Exactly. So it was very different. It was not a food that we ate at home. It had yeah. the Italian undertones, For but sure. it was different. And then I said, I, I got to find out more about the food. So the big first influx of Italian immigrants was at the end of the 1800s, and they were from three regions, from Sicily, sure. Campania, which is Naples, yeah. and Calabria. And the basis of the Italian-American food is in those three regions, ah. the, the peppers, the tomatoes, the sure. garlic. And you can imagine that these immigrants came. They brought with them some dry herbs and things like that, but they couldn't bring much, and they started cooking. But they didn't have the traditional ingredients. So they cooked out of their memory the recipes that they knew with the ingredients yeah. they found. And a whole new cuisine was Italian born. American so, is born. Yeah, and, and and believe me, I love it. Yeah, I, I do love too. that. <laughs> Who doesn't? Not yeah. just the real thing. But oh, it's a valiant it. cuisine. Oh. It's a story of adaptation, but yeah. it's a good cuisine. Yes. Yeah. What was the key to? Why was that little tiny restaurant? What was it called again? Bonavia was the Bonavia. first. Bonavia. Chris is from Brew Up I'm from Forest Hills. I don't I know where it is. 67th Road, uh, right on Queens Boulevard. Oh, my gosh. So I Liz, know exactly where it is so, <laughs> or where it was. So what was the key to the success of this little tiny place you two opened, do you think? I think there was just the genuine philosophy of making it feel just like our home, an extension of our home. Good food, did abundant you, food. Did you give the free Prosecco then when you, when you would say, hey, come have a glass of Prosecco on us? We did a lot of different <laughs> tastings, you know. Then I got cooking, and I cooked regional. We made polenta. Oh, we gosh. had friends. We had friends, hunters. They would bring venison. Sure. We cooked uh, the and sauce. You, and you could do that oh, then. Oh, yeah, you could totally. Serve. Yeah, those, not anymore. <laughs> but I would. we would bring next. They would order their meal, yeah. and next to them, a little plate of polenta and venison. And we oh. would charge them. Say, just taste this. You'll mm. like this. And we did a lot of those things because we were anxious for the people to really get to know us and to know, you know, the Italian food or where we come from, in a sense. And maybe all of that was just this kind of openness to hospitality, mm -hmm. to having uh, our customers and feed them. And so there were lines, Chris, Prosperi, yeah. on the sidewalk to get into this place, and that just kept going. And then, of course, in the book, there's the point where they decide they're going to open another one. Wow. And I'm saying, 
to it. <laughs> no, you're a big hit, just as it is. Well, know. it was tiny. It was tiny. And we enlarged it a little bit. And uh, I guess, you know, that's when the energy of, of accomplishment, mm-hmm. of business, and so on, you know, the opportunity is there. And we took it. And in 1980, we sold both of those restaurants, and we opened Felidia in 1981 nice. on 58th Street. And you know what? Yes. Where do you hear this? Because this is the restaurant that almost broke them. Yes, yes. yes. They almost went down. Whoa, oh, yeah. a hair's breadth from that. We love the local, and we hope you will support your local food growers and food makers. We'll be right back with Lydia Bastianich, our special guest. And this is the Food Schmooze Party offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York, New York, including Westchester County, the east end of Long Island, the Hamptons, of course. Senior producer is Robin Doyen Aiken and Chris Prosperi is here. Our guest is Lydia Bastianich for the full hour because she has written the most amazing memoir. It is called My American Dream. You just cannot believe the things that happened to this person you see uh, all these years teaching you. It's an astonishing story, and the story of many, many immigrants, I think, although this is an original. Before I get to this part of how Felidia, the first really big kind of fancy place that you open, how it really almost broke you, in telling this story... I know your family members have heard you tell stories. You love to grab the kids and get them in bed, and they'd say, tell me stories. When you were writing this book, is there anything that you told your kids? Did they say, I didn't know that? Many things along the way. My grandchildren, I have to share this with you, Faith. My grandchildren's age is from 15 to 21. And we were all together for Easter. I sent them the galley uh, about three weeks before, and I said, this is your story. I want you to read it, and when we're together for Easter, we will discuss it. Wow. That's when a lot of the little questions that they had came out, and, yeah, they were amazed. They were amazed. They didn't know that the regimes. Grandma, you lived through that. Grandpa was in prison, and all of these things. There's a lot of things, you know, sometimes kids don't take in, but as they reach a certain age, then they realize. Did you have to revise anything? (laughs) Did anyone say, I did not do that? (laughs) Well, let me tell you, this was really a close collaboration of this book. My daughter, Tanya, Tanya. who is wonderful. She's an art historian, but she's a great researcher and all that. And then I had help in writing it also. Uh, Lisa Pulitzer was actually her name. Mm -hmm. And the two of them kind of set up a map for me, a chronological map of my life. 
And then I filled it in with all the emotions and my stories. But in doing that, my mother, who's 97, she still lives with me. Wow. She's part of it. You know, every wow. time I had my doubts, sit down, Grandma, what happened here? What happened here? My brother, Franco, back and forth. My cousins. I went back and forth. I just wanted to make so sure. Because sometimes mm, memories, yeah. especially if you have a strong emotional memories, yeah. can take you maybe astray. Hmm. We were very conscious about being on the truthful target or the path. So Felidia is the first I wouldn't say real restaurant because I love these little ones that you start with. I just think, oh, what a dream. But then this is the first. We're talking professional. Now you've got to compete with other people, not only in the country, but maybe the rest of the world. This is going to be a big deal. And you, for all the reasons that happen, cost overruns, the foundation's not right, on and on and on. You almost go under. You're borrowing on the house. Everyone's a wreck. People fall into depression. I mean, it's a terrible, terrible thing. And then it opens. <laughs> and, you know, I'm holding my breath. Even though I know how this ends, I'm kind of holding my breath to see, does something bad happen here that I don't know about? What was the key to it really taking off? Was it the New York Times review or your whole family pitched in? Everybody. Your father was refinishing chairs. Wow. We, mo- we had no resources left. It was almost back to <laughs> square one as immigrants. I said, okay, you, you see. You almost ran uh, out of food. And, you know, sometimes you think, oh, my God, did I want too much? Should I stop at some place? Yeah. There was no food. Uh, actually, we would cook for the workers so that they would work extra hours. Mm-hmm. My husband worked in the city in the restaurant, so that was his mm-hmm. dream. He wanted to come back to the customers that he remembered, and they said, oh, Felice, you got to come back to the city and whatever. And that was the restaurant that I became the chef. So, you know, I had mm-hmm. a lot at stake. Wow, yeah, you yeah. Know? And that was the restaurant where I decided, Okay, if I'm going to be the chef, I'm going to cook the food that we eat at home, the regional Italian cuisine of all the 20 regions of Italy. But there was a lot of unknowns. The building was an old brownstone. You need a cellar. Every restaurant needs a cellar to work, to store. And the underpinning was crumbling. The house was about to fall down. So this was major (laughs) investments that we had to make that we didn't plan on. And when was this? Because it went well over a million dollars by the time you haven't even opened the door yet. Exactly. This was in 1980. We finally opened in April 81. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I hope, you know, you might not be interested in cooking and you listen to the show for the party atmosphere or whatever. But let me tell you that this person, Lydia Bastianich, and her family are just revered in the food and wine world. They have restaurants everywhere now in Italy, too. And it's just, you know, a vineyard. And Joe Bastianich, your son, is an extraordinary, one of the world's great wine people. And Tanya has done one of my favorite books about art and breast cancer. I mean, it's just the most amazing family. So here's my question for you. Would you describe yourself as, if someone had said to you early on, are you the ambitious type do you ever say to yourself, enough, I, okay, now we're going to have resting? Or you don't. But that's a great question. And I had asked myself, and I somewhat come to an answer I'm going to share with you. As we go on, you always do. You said, okay, I'm going to need a rest order. And so I do kind of put an intermezzo now that I'm into way into my career. But somehow I am pulled back like a magnet. You know, there's something <laughs> yeah. that pulls me back. I don't know what it is. It's the people. It's the food. The life. It's the, yeah, it's oh. a life. Uh, but, but, you know, Faith, what I think really, yes, it is the passion. 
It is the eagerness for your family. You want them to live well. You don't want them to experience what you did. You want them to take it to new places. You want your children to get an education, the opportunity, the American opportunity. But I think that what really drove me, and my brother too, my brother, he's more of an academic, both of us, because my mother and father, we saw them a lot of time questioning did we do the right thing? Should we have stayed, especially in the beginning? And I think that the drive to prove to them that what they did was really a great thing for us. And my father kind of left us in the middle of the success. And I'm always sorry, he never saw Felidia mm-hmm. open. But he was such a great part. So I think, Faith, that my drive is to bring them the comfort, the sacrifice that they made was worthwhile, and they were part of the winning winner till this day. My mother is as much part of this success as I am and my whole family. Uh, yes, I think so. After reading your story, I think so, your mother. By the way, <laughs> I just want to say, just before we came on the air, we decided to go back to one of your cookbooks and said, listen, we're celebrating her life and finding out these amazing things. Let's cook something. So Chris, we said to Chris, what do you want to get? So we went to Lydia's Celebrate Like an Italian. We had this book on the show. So we put up on the website your recipe, and we just ate it for rigatoni with Italian-American meat sauce. We wanted to go the Italian-American way, <laughs> and it is a killer meat sauce with Country ribs, pork yeah. ribs, and sausage, sausage, tomatoes. an easy tomato sauce that is just fresh and great. You say it in such a simple way that it's like you're standing next to me when I'm actually yeah. turning the ribs or when I'm taking the sausage out of the pan or, you know, I see a lot of brown fond on the bottom of the pan and you're like, don't burn the garlic, just nice and easy. And it's like you're there with me doing oh. it. And we simmered that sauce for a couple hours last night, mm-hmm. and the love of the dish comes through, right? Faith, we just had yeah. it for lunch today. And I, I really hope you'll go to fuchmoose.org yeah, and Sunday. make this. Yeah, make it Sunday. <laughs> I, I'm, so, I'm so delighted to hear oh. everything that you had to say. First of all, honored that you tried my recipes. And I do feel I want to be a guiding kind of force. I want people to enjoy and to cook and to know, but I do want to be there with them. So I'm glad it comes through. And this recipe is a great recipe because it's a one-pot recipe. Mm -hmm. And you have the pasta first, the dressing for the pasta. So you have il primo and then il secondo actually of the meat and you make a salad with or something. So you have a full-fledged, elegant meal and you can make it for 10, 12 people. This recipe. Oh, makes a lot. Yes, (laughs) yes. That's it. But the other way, you can save it. You know, save mm-hmm. some meat in the sauce, put it in the freezer, mm-hmm. and you can have four subsequent meals. Yes. So this recipe has wine in it. How typical is that in Italy to make a red sauce with wine? Uh, you know, in- wine or some sort of acidity in cooking is typical, mm-hmm. you know, because it kind of deglazes, it brings the acidity. In Italy, they would do this too? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I okay. mean, you know, in Italy, you cook with what the reality is. So you drink <laughs> while you cook. And, and then, oh, yeah, yeah a little bit of... flash it in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get it off the bottom, I get right? the question a lot of time, you know, Lydia, what wine should I cook for? I says, the wine you drink, you know. <laughs> yeah, while you're drinking, put the, it in. When I put the wine in, the one thing I notice is you turn that sauce. That could have been the sauce. 
Yeah. That could have been a sauce because when those meats seared, there was such a fond on the bottom so of the Chris, pan. So, Chris, explain to people who might not cook yeah. what fond is. They know the that little, little crumbly, yeah, you know, caramelization at the bottom. F- the bo- full bottom of the pan because I had just seared two pounds of sausage and four pounds of ribs, country ribs in it. So, so I mean, this what, big. What happened when you poured the wine in? Oh, Did it just it... pulled it off the bottom and the sauce, so- it turned like this beautiful brown color like in yeah. seconds and then you start reducing it and then you put your tomatoes in and it yeah, yeah. it's it's heaven you, you it's could have the wine heaven. sauce could be that oh my you gosh. just yeah. you know cooking with wine the important thing is get the alcohol out let the mm-hmm. alcohol dissipate yeah. mm-hmm. the rest is what gives flavor to whatever you're cooking yeah. do you think cooking is your canvas i mean do you think of it if you could have been a painter and the canvas would have been right in front of you and you would keep making art do you think of food that way? Yes. Food is a medium with which I communicate. But not only I. It's a medium for all of us to communicate. Food is the ultimate equalizer. You know, we yeah. all need food. We yeah. all eat. I don't care what race, creed, or whatever, wherever you come from. And that kind of unites us. So being at the table and offering food with somebody or sharing their food mm-hmm. means the actual acceptance of that connection. In your book, there was one thing that I laughed at, and that was, you know how farm to table, we've, it's become very precious. Sure. And of course, this is how, how we started in America because, well, of course you would start there. And then it went away. Now everyone's trying to bring it back, and it's, it's become, in some circles, a kind of precious thing. Here you are from Italy, where it was real farm-to-table out of necessity. You get over here, and what enthralls you but the Duncan Hines cake mixes <laughs> on the aisles of the markets that you were in? It still makes me laugh when I think well, of it. Well, you know, it's a great period. And I, 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 when I shop and I look at those boxes of mix, I still kind of laugh. But at the time, they were splendid. Here I was. Yeah, the 70s, right? I, yeah. yeah. I was a 12-year-old cooking because mom was working late and she would have everything ready for me and I discovered this box mix and it wasn't expensive nope. and you bring it home and you put an egg or some, some butter oil. or some milk or whatever you put it in the pan and voila it puffs up into this, this <laughs> delicious cake every night we had recipe I felt great it was kind of yeah. A, an immediate success for me, you know, kind of, oh, I can do. And, and so I continued and I enjoyed it. I mean, you know, it was a period and it was my way of getting to know America and to be mm-hmm. American. At one point, frozen dinners. Yeah. I know. You thought that was the greatest thing when you could afford to get one. Yes. And I had to work. My mother wouldn't buy me because she says, for that money, I can feed all four of you for a dinner. Yeah. So I remember we had this pull-out tray, you know. It was taken off the street sample. Somebody had thrown out, and we fixed it. My father fixed it. And I had this sort of TV tray. Oh. I bought myself this dinner, this dinner, a oh, frozen dinner. Yeah. I reheated it in the oven. I put myself in front of the television, with and the I <laughs> ate with the tray. I ate a TV dinner, and I watched the show, and I says, I'm American. That kind of, you know, as a kid, that made you American. You know, I felt very part of it. Oh, my gosh. I I just want to close by saying just one observation that at the age you were at that time that you discovered the cake mix is when girls typically hormonally things are going on and girls start to what we call lose confidence because they're being flooded with hormones. Boys, the opposite. They become super confident. 
And so girls can get pushed back. And at that moment, you were having success with those Duncan Hines cakes. Next thing you know, you're in a bakery working. Exactly. I think this is a great story. It's really, it's an American story. It's my story. Thank you. And stick to it. That's what I would say. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Lydia Bastianich, Chris Prosperi, Robin Doyen Aiken, our senior producer. Thank you so much for listening. We're on Connecticut Public Radio Thursdays at 3 and Saturdays at noon. Weekdays, listen for my 60-second food schmoozes. Never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton. Don't want the party to end? Well, neither do we. Talk with us anytime online at foodschmooze.org.